After just over a year of the novel coronavirus circulating in the world, more than two million people are dead because of the virus. And recent changes in COVID-19 have authorities concerned. But like Heraclitus said, change is the only constant in life. And that's no different with viruses. I'm Adam Toy. And I'm Dave McIver. And this is Why. If you hoped living with COVID-19 was going to get any easier in 2021, you may be out of luck. Going into a, a second year of this, it could even be tougher, given the transmission dynamics and, and, and some of the issues that we're, we're seeing. That's Mike Ryan, the WHO's top emergencies official. The transmission dynamics he's referring to is the increased speed of COVID-19 as a result of mutation. No, these viruses didn't come into contact with a mysterious green ooze to mutate. It's in their RNA. But we'll get to that. There are a few what are called variants of COVID-19 we know of so far, one from the UK and one from South Africa. What we know about the variant coming out of UK, um, B117, is that uh, it appears to be more transmissible um, than the dominant variant of uh, SARS-CoV-2 that's been circulating previously. Um, as of now, there does not appear to be uh, any major differences in the severity of disease that it causes uh, on an individual level. That's Matthew Miller. I'm an associate professor in the Michael G. DeGroote Institute for Infectious Disease Research at McMaster University. The variant out of uh, South Africa um, isn't quite as well understood. Uh, there are some changes that um, do have modest impact on antibody binding, but I think right now, again, we still uh, think that those changes are modest enough that um, current vaccines, uh, as well as people who have immunity uh, that's been elicited by prior natural infection with COVID um, should still be protected. But there's uh, recently a pretty similar mutation also out of the uh, Brazilian uh, Amazon area. Um, and they're pretty um, identical in the way that they interact with the cell. So if, if you're exposed to these viruses, the probability that you actually get infected is higher. And therefore, the transmission rates uh, go up. And that's Dr. Frank Vandermeer. I'm an associate professor of virology at the University of Calgary in Calgary. These are um, mutations that has happened uh, specifically in the spots where the virus binds to the cells. So you have to, to know that the viruses normally have to bind to a cell in order to enter it. These spots are critical, of course, for the ability of the virus to do that efficiently. And they have been, there have been a couple of mutations in these particular spots that make, makes the binding more strong. And therefore, the uh, virus can enter in, in higher rates and more efficiently into these cells. You can think of it like this. The binding sites in our cells are like locks and the virus has keys. And with these new variants, the keys are better at getting into our cells. For, for the sake of, uh, of ease, I think a, a lock and, and a 
and a key is not a bad comparison. Cases of the UK and South Africa strains have been detected in Canada and the federal government hopes to prevent importing these strains with travel restrictions. Uh, as we said from the very beginning, uh, we will do whatever it takes to keep Canadians safe based on the best advice, the best recommendations of experts, uh, as we did uh, when uh, there was concern over uh, the Christmas holidays around the UK variant. Uh, we banned flights all right, uh, outright coming from the UK uh, while we could uh, bring in stronger measures around uh, pre-boarding testing. Uh, mandatory for anyone returning to this country. We will continue to look at uh, various variants, various geographies, uh, and, uh, and make sure we're taking the right decisions and the right measures to keep Canadians safe. Uh, every step of the way, we're going to be informed uh, by the recommendations of, uh, of our experts and of uh, public health uh, doctors on how to ensure we're keeping Canadians as safe as we possibly can. So is this the first time that the novel coronavirus has mutated? No, not really. But it's so the virus, again, um, if you sort of look at the, the virus in every individual, um, you can find minor differences. Um, and, and that's just reflective of the nature of coronaviruses in general. There are always these subtle differences. But as a whole, um, the properties of those viruses don't change much. And you don't see, you know, one of these variants becoming particularly dominant, uh, usually. So uh, uh, SARS uh, as a coronavirus is a what we call an RNA virus. So it's, it has a certain uh, genetic uh, code that uh, we, we consider uh, very uh, unstable. So it, it, every time it replicates, there's always a couple of uh, changes, so mistakes made in the replication. And generally, these mistakes are referred to as a mutation. So um, specifically, when these mutations have an advantage over the previous form of the virus, um, you can imagine that these uh, these changes then uh, becomes more favorable in the way it replicates or uh, holds in the population. So um, every time these mutations have an advantage, you will see that the uh, spread of these mutations uh, will will be uh, bigger and more uh, pronounced. So um, in principle, that's a very normal process for a virus of this kind. Um, what has changed is that we've seen, uh, let's say in the last nine months, um, that there were mutations and they were simmering sort of in the background. We saw them, we noticed them, but nothing really uh, of importance happens with them. But the last couple of weeks, uh, when the UK and the South African and now also the Brazilian mutations have, uh, have emerged, we see that they actually are overtaking the, the uh, in prevalence all the other mutations that we saw in the past. So instead of that, they are simmering in the background to become more the dominant strains. That, that has uh, led to the conclusion that these uh, um, particular mutations, and they are very well defined uh, where they actually happen, and, and they are also now uh, a topic of research, is how they actually have this favorable outcome. So how can they be more um, uh, more circulating than what we saw in the past? Mm -hmm. So in the past, mutation just happened, and it's great 
to track uh, uh, viruses over the world, but we didn't see them overtaking in prevalence. But now we see that happening, and that also means that these mutations are different from what we saw in the past. It's like making a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy. The image will change with each generation. Yeah, yeah, that's a good analogy. Another analogy... um that, that's apt is, you know, the, the, the classic sort of telephone game, right? Where mm. someone um, says a sentence and whispers it to someone else. That person whispers it to the next person who whispers it to the next person. Most of the time, even though the words themselves change when that story gets passed along to each successive person, the sort of punchline of the story stays the same but eventually if if you play the telephone game long enough there's enough mistakes that get made as the story is passed from one person to the next that some critical detail of the story changes altogether and that's that's essentially what happens for these viruses the virus isn't actively trying to do anything the mutations just happen randomly but randomly, some of those mutations will give the virus an ability to do something better than it was doing before. And those are the types of variants that we worry about. Kind of that natural selection that, that Darwin spoke of centuries ago. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. It's simply natural selection happening at the viral level. What do these new variants mean on the ground for people? You, you mentioned uh, it, it seems like they're more easy to be transmitted, more easy to be spread. Like, is Are these things that, you know, I, I, an average Canadian should be worried about as they're going about their business, hopefully mostly at home? Yeah, so spread is worrisome mostly on the population level. So because the virus doesn't cause or doesn't at least appear to cause more severe disease in a given individual, um, we're not worried that people who have been low risk in the past all of a sudden become high risk. But what challenges um, more transmissible variants pose is that the restrictions that are required to, to lessen the number of cases need to be more stringent the more transmissible the virus is. So the easier the virus spreads, the harder it is to stop that spread, which in turn means um, the more restrictive policies need to be in place in order to to mitigate that spread. And so that obviously has profound um, consequences on, on people's daily lives because of, you know, the need to institute things um, you know, like like widespread lockdowns and states of emergency. Um, the the reason that those things are required, of course, is again not because the virus is more dangerous to people who are already low risk, but simply because of the fact that the more transmission there is, the more likely it is that the virus spreads to people who are high risk. So, how did we detect these new variants in the first place? It's a lot of groundwork. So, if you have an infection, um, in many cases, they will be submitted for sequencing to verify what kind of strains actually are circling to ensure that we we stay on top of it. And especially in the United Kingdom, they would do that on a massive scale. So that's how you find them. And that's why it's still in the UK strain, but it doesn't have to uh, be that um, these these strains have actually first time emerged in the UK. They were detected there. That doesn't mean they actually emerged there. The way that these variants are detected is, is by 
um, this technology called sequencing, where we can uh, essentially we can essentially get this sequence of the entire virus's genome. The, the issue with sequencing technology is that it is a lot more expensive and um, intensive than the sort of classical types of diagnostic tests that we use to detect virus, um, you know, when someone goes to a COVID assessment center, for example. So if you have symptoms and you go to a COVID assessment center and you get swabbed, what happens is they basically just try and detect one very small piece of the virus. And it basically just gives you a yes-no answer. That's what you get out of those tests, either yes, the person has the virus, or no, the person doesn't. It doesn't tell you the level of relatedness of the virus that that person has to the person who came in before them or the person who came in after them. But from those same samples, we can do much more intensive analysis where we can essentially look at all parts of the virus and compare it to the other samples from other infected individuals. And so when you apply this at a large enough scale, it allows you to more sort of accurately know whether it's essentially the same variant of virus that's causing most of infections or whether you're starting to see some new variant pop up, which might suggest that um, the virus has gained one of these, you know, new properties that's allowing it to to spread more efficiently. Is that like a, a part of normal virus uh, surveillance that that a, that a company's or that a, that a country's uh, healthcare system would be providing ideally? No, if if, if on a normal regular day, uh, so not COVID time, yeah. um, that's not what we would do. It's because it's a huge investment as well. So it is something very typical that has been initiated uh, after uh, the COVID outbreak. But um, there there's always some surveillance ongoing to figure out um, what kind of strains are circulating. And um, we want to make sure that uh, whatever is in the vaccine is still compatible to what we find in the field. So um, this kind of surveillance is on a smaller scale used to verify whether vaccine are still up to date. It's like a new front in the battle against coronavirus. Yeah, I I think the good news is that there is sort of precedent for these kinds of surveillance networks. This is something that, um, you know, we've been doing for a long time with influenza because of, uh, you know, the seasonal influenza epidemics we experience every year. And of course, prior to COVID, we've had five influenza virus pandemics since 1918, so really over the course of, you know, just over 100 years, the most recent of which was the 2009 um, H1N1 swine flu. So we we do know how to do this. And I think a lot of the existing infrastructure that's been developed for influenza surveillance can be adapted so that we're able to better look for um these these kinds of mutations in in viruses like SARS-CoV-2. With vaccines beginning to roll out across the country, there's a bit of a race on to get needles in arms before a variant emerges that out-evolves the vaccine. Well, we're just scratching the surface as how much we actually know about these uh, kind of, uh, of viruses. And um, there will be more variants popping up. And it's it's not necessarily a lot of concern because that's what viruses do 
but it's always good to be very careful in, in the way you interpret these uh, these uh, strains emerging and that, that we don't start panicking, but that we just keep on looking at the facts, looking at the ability of vaccines to actually um, produce sufficient immunity against these variants that will show up 100%. We, we can be sure of that part. Some good news is that, you know, even if a variant arises that, let's say, changes um, how well our vaccines work, um, those vaccine platforms can be updated to um, include those new variants. And the other thing that's important to know is that immunity isn't binary, meaning it's not that you either have immunity or you don't. Any new variant that emerges might have the possibility of reducing how well our immune system responds to the virus, but it certainly won't be the case that, you know, we just don't respond at all. So the current vaccines and individuals who have been infected in the past they would still have partial immunity to any new variant, which would be expected to do beneficial things still, like, for example, decrease the severity of infection potentially or decrease the risk that that person transmits the virus. So the, the issue of variants emerging that might change the way our immune system sees them is not a sort of binary issue. It's, a, it's on a gradient. Um, and so people shouldn't worry that we're going to be right back where we started. Um, even if a variant emerges that, that influences the effectiveness of the vaccine, it's not going to be an all or nothing phenomenon. It just means we will need to update those vaccines to make them uh, more effective in the future, similar to the way that we update annual flu vaccines. So what is our best defense against these new variants? So uh, overall, you know, these restrictions that are in place around, you know, decreasing gatherings and, and masking when in high density places, um, those things are all designed to help us return to normal more quickly, in part by reducing the probability of a new variant emerging that's going to set us back from, from you know, the really um, hopeful progress we've made in terms of now having uh, vaccines that have very high efficacy uh, that are finally being rolled out uh, into the population. This is Why is produced by me, Dave McIver, and Adam Toy. It's a national radio show and a podcast. You can reach us by email, thisiswhy at globalnews.ca and on Twitter at thisiswhy. If you like what you hear and want to hear more, make sure you subscribe to This Is Why so you never miss an episode. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you're hearing, tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Wash your hands, stay home, and wear a mask. We'll see you soon.